Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I am your co-host, Jared Lee. And I'm Ben Rays. And we're not alone. Not we're not. No, we wouldn't dare enter this very happy new year without bringing along Tom Spire, who has been out in Leadenhall Market and every other country around the world's equivalent over the past four months, <laughs> tracking the renewals and spending a lot of time on, on planes. Very unenvironmentally friendly. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you. Good to see you. Yeah. So, as Ben alluded to, today is the deep dive into the one-one sort of renewal reports. Did you, Jared? Some are come out. I've got props. <laughs> um, I was going to say, I just thought you were swimming <laughs> in paper. But. Again, not environmentally friendly, but we've got the reports have come out from the big brokers. Um, Howden and Gallagher have put theirs out. Aon and GC are alluding to theirs probably over the next couple of weeks. Um, tons to unpack here. Where do you guys want to start with the one-one recaps? We should probably go super high level, first of all. I I mean, for those of you who haven't been listening to our coverage, I probably we've mentioned the word orderly about a million times, you know, right back from Monte Carlo to Baden-Baden editions of this podcast. But I did we did we achieve that orderly aim, do you think, Tom, when it came to the, the 1st of January? I think everybody's claiming that their predictions came true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, it was more orderly than last year, certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's um, it was obvious that it was it was going to work out that way. Um, I think the interesting things are actually in in some of the nuances mm -hmm. in the reports. Yeah, one of the things we'd mentioned in the build up was um, this perception that it was going to be like bifurcated across the market, and I think that was one of the themes or a motif that has come out of the reports is it's used quite heavily across all of them around if it, if risks were not there's some sort of low losses to certain certain portfolios or certain layers those performed really well sometimes even getting decreases in rate um but those who got hit with losses sort of were t taking rate again but on the whole the market sort of broadly flat broadly consistent but then as you drill into specific lines of business specific clients specific geographies or products um then it, that nuance began to really emerge yeah and we'll, we'll try and dig into each of those sectors during today's episode I, we, as usual, don't have a particular plan or structure order. <laughs> so you just have to listen to the whole thing if you want to hear all of the insights. I, but I agree with you both. I think we saw at a high level a real all-round intention from everybody, sedents, brokers, reinsurers alike, to make sure that this felt like a good and friendly and well-managed renewals, partly because, you know, the strain the relationships were put under last year trying to, you know, get in very quickly a lot of changes that were a little bit uncomfortable i think this year it was almost about from the reinsurer's point of view can we make sure those changes stick mm -hmm. from the student's point of view can we make sure they don't get any worse and from the brokers can we make sure that it feels like the renewal was smooth yeah. so collectively that intention has probably resulted all around in renewals getting done with roughly the same terms that they had last year but mm -hmm. with some variation as yeah. we should probably dive into yeah, I think I think that's setting the, the tone really nicely. If you looked at the sort of prop cat as an example, last year was like a thirty seven percent average rate hike. Like that's savage, right? And everyone sort of felt that this year it was more like three. So, um, and that was just that property cat space, um, more North American impacted. Um, the other thing that you th I think is playing a huge role for this renewal season was changes last year moved reinsurers away from aggregation losses. Um, and so as you were sort of talking, we've talked about on the, uh, in the buildup and this sort of these gray swan events, we still still hit a hundred billion in industry losses, 
but there was no significant like single cat event. But because of, of the changes in 2023, it meant that the insurers held most of those sort of accumulation losses on, on their own balance sheets, which meant the reinsurer's performance was was in a better position going into this renewal season, which I think you saw driving the sort of capacity play. Yeah, I think certainly one of the things that remains to be seen how it will play out is what will happen to these so-called secondary perils, right? So mm-hmm. the reinsurers have effectively put up their arms and said, no, thanks, we're not, we're not taking those on anymore. And the insurers have had to say, well, I... I guess we'll just have to hope they don't happen. And, and some you know, pockets of the market are more able to deal with that than others. Uh, I think in particular, you know, some of the students in the Midwest have, have been struggling uh, where those are perils they really can't afford to, uh, to hold on to. But if there's no reinsurers to come and take on those risks, what can you do? You know, there's not really many other sources. We've not seen uh, new capacity coming to the market in any big way. We've seen, yes, a greater adoption of cap bonds than in, in prior years, but in general, investors have still remained pretty wary about putting new funds into the space. Yes, we've had one good year of results, but perhaps not enough of a track record yet to really inspire new capacity. Yeah. That, that diversification in markets, particularly from you know the clients that I've been talking to, has typically come at the top of towers as well. Um, so you, you know you're still seeing an increase in attachment points. You're still seeing all of those frustrations from the beginning of the year. Um, but yeah, where extra capacity has come in, it's tended to be right at the top yeah. of those programs. Yeah, well, and if, if people want to dive into that more specifically, you have got a great article on that that will be linked in the show notes. Um, so those who want to dig in deeper can can find that there. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. This, And the same thing is you're seeing with um, the new sources of capacity. Um, cap bonds grew significantly in this in this renewal season, um, partly because they're being deployed on those higher layers. You're seeing an influx of capacity there, but those lower layers and sort of how people navigate those. And again, this is beginning to expose that bifurcation that people have been talking about is here it's overflowing in capital and people are oversubscribing. And Tom Wakefield had some points around the sort of psychology of over, oversubscription in those areas, but sort of while simultaneously running away from still these lower layer attritional um, sort of exposed layers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that that's the other thing that I was going to mention is, you know, we're sitting here saying the renewal was orderly and everything went smoothly and, and we read broker reports that you know, obviously brokers want to say we did a great job and everything went smoothly. Um, you know, we have clients in places like Italy and Turkey it didn't go smoothly yeah. it, it was horrible yeah. um for for some clients there so yeah, yeah definitely a mix yeah. yeah yeah absolutely and i think we've also seen with that oversubscription opportunity in some areas i contrasted with i other parts of the market that as we said have, have really struggled the capacity has not been coming in at the right right places for the students where it has come in right so you've ended up with a, a retro market, which, you know, last year really struggled, obviously came came to right at the, you know, the end of the season when we found out whether there would be enough retro capacity to support mm-hmm. the market. Uh, this year, because retro actually is quite a small market in itself, mm-hmm. any new capacity there actually makes a really big difference uh, quite quickly on. So we've suddenly had, you know, let's say 500 million of, of new capacity appear there. Yeah wow, suddenly that's, that's a, a massive change to what that market can do, relatively speaking. 
Whereas if you were to add 500 million to the more broad traditional reinsurance market and drop in the ocean, nobody cares. I would not been able to see that kind of availability of lower layer capacity that could actually make a difference, a meaningful difference at least, to any rate increase, uh, sorry, any any rates. And at the same time, I probably most of the willingness or, or loosening of capacity has actually been with those big traditional players who are already in the space and are going to deploy that very selectively to the clients they like best. Yeah. The other thing that was sort of a theme there was um, bene- like in developments uh, for uh, losses like Ian which were improving. So then what was last year's renewal season, especially in retro, like trapped capacity is becoming sort of untrapped, <laughs> if, that, if that's the way you'd frame it. But released. Released <laughs> capacity is probably a better way. I like untrapped. <laughs> <laughs> I am untrapping you, caged animal. Um, but that came back in the market. It, it, the, those investors, there was a renewed appetite to deploy more capital alongside the released capacity sort of from those developments. Um, which again, as that all sort of accumulated, was a was a better position for the retro space, which then sort of trickled through um, the reinsurance market a bit, which I think helped. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think you've seen it interestingly. On one hand, and I, th- I think going back to Monte Carlo, you know, property was kind of in the spotlight, and everyone was talking about property, and, and then you've seen hurricanes near miss, and you've seen these these releases and and so on. I that mean that property's actually become a bit more manageable. Everyone's got comfortable with it. Also, at the same time, actually, some of the reserves for casualty have started to look a bit more alarming, and there's been a bit more of a focus there. At the same time, I, as this capacity crunch that we've been talking about generally, meaning that I think a lot of commissions have come under quite a bit of strain. Uh, we haven't seen maybe enough pressure to, to really affect uh, broader terms beyond last year's changes or to see really big movements in structures etc but what we have seen come under pressure is those commissions and i think students have been pretty willing to to give up those to protect their programs more generally but do you, do you think casualty was as bad this renewal as you know people were talking about i remember mm. you know we were together in baden baden recording and like people were getting seriously worried about it that it, it was going to be a very very difficult renewal season for us ca- us casualty and I don't think that's the timing has quite worked out that it's hit this renewal period. More to come, perhaps, as we we move for, forward into 2024. Well, possibly, and if if that's a big driver of squeezes on commissions, then I think we're going to see that as a trend moving forward. One of the other things that had come out in the reports related to casualty specifically was there was a real difficulty in changing structures around that. So most of that business is being written on a quota share basis with the only sort of lever you can pull being the seating commission. So what that might look like over time, a real difficulty in moving those to any Excel towers or similar. So yeah, as we go into that, there's still that concern around capital and what that might look like in a casualty like event. Um, so yeah, that could be an interesting one. If we don't think we've, if that particular part of the market doesn't seem like it's, it's taken the rate that other parts have, it might be one that sort of is again, looming as we go into 2024. All, all the same, I guess one of the things that keeps coming back when I've been talking with people around the market is this continued dominance of us property as a class, which is making pretty much anything else attractive as a diversifier uh, in its own right so mm. whether we can put casualty in that bucket 
is, is a bit questionable, but certainly some other markets, say specialty classes yeah. that even aren't that profitable, uh, other regions, Europe in particular, becoming maybe a bit more competitive despite uh, not great performance there, just because you know people want to load up on all this property and they need something else to balance it with. Uh, in in a world in a in a geopolitical context where actually outside of a sort of core stable, largely Western markets, mm. uh, and a few uh, more mature uh, markets in the East, we're we're seeing a lot of areas where insurers are actually trying to draw back from at the moment because of a lot of issues around the world right now. Yeah, some of the reports specifically highlighted that U.S. casualty no longer was that trading card that they could yeah. swap out to sort of balance that exposure the way it the way it used to be. So for a couple decades, it was very much this, oh, I have a ton of U.S. cat or, um, and property risk. I can balance that out. I can bring in this casualty to sort of offset some mm -hmm. of that. Um, it's no longer looking like that's as appealing for that as that sort of tool, um, which again adds complexity to these negotiations quite a lot. Yeah, which leaves you questioning, where do you turn to as you're, you know, if you want to load up on, on all this new risk, where do you turn to? Especially, actually, we should probably stay on the U.S. for a moment because quite a few rumblings as we go into you know one six one seven that maybe some of the the markets out in the u.s uh hurricane driven uh, side of things mm -hmm. could be improving slightly so with the assignment of benefits reforms taking place actually quite a few reinsurers have stepped forwards and said you know florida's now a relatively attractive market again so mm -hmm. yet another uh, source of u.s premiums that need <laughs> diversifying with something else at some point yeah, well, and certainly in response to last year where people were sort of fleeing some of those, there was a, a massive exodus from Florida from some carriers and things. And, and the reinsurers also sort of looking to avoid that as a class. I think these reforms were necessary to ensure enough capitals coming in to support these, these different areas. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what that looks like coming into the summer. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. What about california wildfire do, yeah. you, do you see that going the same way like there's there's talk of reforms and legislation i, I don't think we're there yet but to be honest no I, I i agree that that's probably the next most important topic for us to come on to in that that wider u.s market is what on earth is going on in california and and how will they get themselves out of the situation they're in i if you haven't been following that one carefully you know right now a lot of uh, rules prevent the local insurers in California from raising their prices uh, at any given pace. So it takes a very long time to get any mm -hmm. changes to their prices uh, put forwards. Even when new exposures like wildfire come in, there has been a bit of progress uh, on that recently. But in the meantime, most of the reinsurers who were supporting that market have sort of left. Uh, and as a result, a lot of the main carriers who were offering policies in that market have said, well, sorry, we can't offer any insurance in that market either, leaving a lot of people in the state of California without access to insurance providers, which is a bit scary given the level of peril. And it's, it's not much state. of a choice either. <laughs> like, you know, at least, like, if, if there are insurers willing to offer policies, you have a choice between expensive insurance or no insurance. Yeah. And, and they're left with the only choice being no insurance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that can't be good for anybody. No, absolutely. And I think it, it ties into a, a lot of concern about broadly a few peak peril markets becoming uninsurable yeah. if the reinsurance markets won't support them. So how how will we, you know, bring capacity to those areas kind of remains to be seen unless unless we can, you know, get the prices up for the underlying risk yeah. in the first place. Or or you're you're gonna continue to have it where 
there is reinsurance coverage at very high levels, but the insurers have to sort of absorb significant underlying losses before they can get some additional protection. So what that might look like in the insurers having to build a proposition that allows them to sort of have that level of net retention, I guess, of their losses. Well, if they have to, right? I, I think um, one of the things we've seen over the last year is this growth in the excess and surplus lines yeah. market in the US kind of against admitted carriers because admitted carriers are very restrained in how they can adjust, particularly deductibles, mm -hmm. as a response to inflationary pressure, whereas the ENS market doesn't have that pressure. And, and actually, that because they're able to pass a bit more of that risk on share a bit more of that risk, I should say, with the policyholder, mm. um, then it makes those companies more attractive from a reinsurance perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's a, there's an interesting counterpoint to that as well. I think, which is the talent point of view. I probably worth an annual review. Might as well do it now. I <laughs> not anywhere else. But you've seen a lot of that business as a really good case study move to MGAs. I. And you've seen a lot of really good people, meanwhile, moving from traditional carriers to MGAs at the same time. You know, more reward tied more closely to their performance, arguably, I think, has been a lot of the attraction uh, of doing so there. But at the same time, especially in a very frothy market for M&A, you've seen a lot of uh, senior underwriters, senior brokers, etc., put out of work quite quietly by consolidation, by... Uh, lines of business being cut where you know over the last few years they haven't been deemed profitable so they've just been sort of closed down so as a, a talent pool it feels like perhaps our our market has reduced the amount of talent that it depends on i uh, all at the same time as demand for our products increasing and in theory capital following at some point but maybe not any any thoughts on the the outlook for for talent in this space? Is well, it means everyone gets paid more, right? <laughs> <laughs> as long as you you last, I suppose. It's like an elimination game. It's, like, uh, it's going to gradually become the Hunger Games of uh, <laughs> of reinsurance. That could but be a good long running feature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it'll be an interesting interesting one to watch. I think there's always been the sort of rise of startups and the as a result of this off the back. So talent will always ebb and flow between the big carriers, the consolidations, the new startups, consolidations, the people fall out. So I think one of the things we that was a an, uh, sort of trend in 2023 or lack of a trend was the lack of net new companies emerging following Ian, mm. right? Which I think we're always looking at this comparison of looking at the previous massive events so the spike of new classes of reinsurance coming in, cat bonds kind of filled a lot of that this in this renewal season, but we hadn't seen the sort of net new entrance with a with a sort of influx of talent. Perhaps that's there. I think there's capital PE capital looking to sort of deploy and build and build businesses here. So certainly there's an opportunity for it, um, but I think that's a, a likely scenario is more startup firms sort of getting in, picking up that talent that an opportunity to sort of make it we different. haven't seen it on the reinsurer side mm -hmm. where there's probably probably been less in um on the consolidation side mm -hmm. amongst reinsurers um as a result whereas where we really have seen a lot of new startups um coming through has been on the broking side where the consolidation has been well much more pronounced if if you, if you include a couple of the, the mega mergers that have mm -hmm. happened in the last couple of years so there are actually some really exciting, you know, new startups. I, 
don't know. Shouldn't single anyone out, but like Go I on. have an eye on on like Juniper Re seems like mm. really interesting project, um, particularly with that being a, a proper U.S. domiciled reinsurance mm. broker. Mm. Um, and there's yeah, there's a few others that are yeah. coming out that I, I think will have get some traction. Yeah, and it, it was interesting getting a few opinions on on this when I was out in Bermuda, sort of mid December. I but live from the action the. That's a terrible time to be in Bermuda. Oh no, it's great though to get, uh, you know, from the from the battle line <laughs> on the front line, watching everything happen. It was, it was good in that respect. I, the weather was terrible there. I must say, yeah, no swimming in the sea, I, or in the pool for that matter. But anyway, the uh, the main thing that came out of the the discussion about the brokers was whether we have enough brokers now, and actually it seemed like most people thought we'd reached quite a nice point. Mm. Uh, there was definitely frustration previously, mm. I, but now there's probably enough. In fact, some of them said probably you know six or seven is enough, and then you have a few players around the edge that are your more specialty plays where there's a particular angle they're going after. Mm. And obviously there's value to having those extra pieces around the edge because there's going to be consolidation in future yeah. years uh, of those players. You know, I, it's, it's doubtful that the... Uh, the various acquisition machines that we see in the breaking space are going to slow down their their plans anytime soon. Mm. I, and of course, you know, 2024 is very exciting for seeing what happens I, from a Willis point of view as well. So we'll all be watching with, with bated breath. Uh, well, yeah, I was going to gonna say, I mean, clearly the brokers don't agree that six or seven brokers is <laughs> like, like, where was that opinion coming from? Uh, that was more from the, the market's point of view and from the buyer's point of view. As so in, they, they feel like there's there's more choice now. I again, I think, I think as well, we call it choice mm -hmm. for buyers. I every every choice of a reinsurance broker is also pressure to adopt a reinsurance broker. Right? I mean, some of the co-breaking that goes on nowadays is a little bit silly in terms mm -hmm. of the number of brokers you have on a given panel because you want to give a slice to everyone who's your friend. So they're just fed yeah. up of being sold to. Or <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there was a recognition that. Nobody wanted to be, especially when we were looking at a fear of Aon Willis happening prior to Willis Gallagher, mm. where it's like, oh, if this goes through, you know, 80% of my reinsurance deals are either being done by or coming through, you know, yeah. two, bro uh, two brokers, effectively. Yeah. And that was a little bit scary in terms of power because, you know, at that point, who can challenge them? Who can say what commissions are right? what rebates are right because you've, you've got no alternatives to point to whereas now there's a, a healthier balance i would say between being able to push back and say actually there are quite attractive other providers i can use i'm probably still going to use you but yeah. on, on good terms no, i just found it an interesting yeah. comment like something that you use every day you're like okay that's enough choice mm -hmm. right? yeah there's enough pens in the world <laughs> I, don't, I don't need no more brands of i pens, would agree please. with that comment <laughs> <laughs> I think um, when when we were looking at if you look at it from a reinsurer's point of view, um, the f the very obvious fear of there's only two, yeah, is is big because the the power imbalances is so significant. Um, however, it it's fairly resource intensive to build relationships with brokers worldwide. Mm -hmm. And if you said instead of two, we're going to have five hundred different brokers, all of whom are going to do their own. That's a that's a, a hellscape for reinsurers who are going to try to send their 
their team to go on meetings and trips and build bigger relationships and have a strategy across shared clients and, and everything else. So I think they're trying to strike that balance of we don't want two. We also don't want hundreds and hundreds like because we need to deploy our efforts to build relationships and get the deal flow that we want. If that deal flow sort of explodes across hundreds of people, as an extreme example, that's also very difficult. So I think they're looking at it going, seven to ten's about right. More than that's too too painful. There's this sort of, what's the, there's a um, massive tangent now, but there was a report that come out, this is like early 2000s maybe, but it was about, it was about um, mustard and how like if there's too many options of mustard, people have like paralysis of choice. Mm-hmm. Similar here, I think, in reinsurance of like, I only want a couple core ones. If you if you introduce like hundreds of variations of this, I I just would rather just walk away from the whole operation. Give me give me a couple select few that I know what, I can trust. What are the core mustards? No, so the the comparison was why there's only a few. Because if there's if you look at there's there's your is Dijon, American Dijon yellow. Dijon a core mustard? It is a core mustard. <laughs> <laughs> a core mustard. Which 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 variation of, of Dijon? Yeah yeah. Coleman's whole grain, <laughs> whole whole grain. Whole grain Dijon. Coleman's count. What's the one that I can't pronounce? It's, I probably can, but I've forgotten what it's called. There's a big French brand. Yeah, they, they do the whole, the, whole, the whole grain, right? <laughs> They've got a store on Piccadilly, I think. Oh, that's not great. Yeah, yeah, where well, you can get like 18 different types. Yeah. Anyway. Did you, uh, not all <laughs> of those are core mustards. No. Oh, all core mustards. <laughs> Specialty mustards. <laughs> <laughs> if you go like the big, the big grocers in the States will only have a couple versus... Mm. Um, they're on a big yellow squeezy bottle. Yeah, French right. Horrendous. Right. <laughs> a yellow that does not appear in nature. That's the yeah. color we want for our mustard. Yeah. That's but an excellent tangent. We've no, not had a good tangent like that in ages. But <laughs> continuing on that on that thought, though, I, I'd be keen to expand the same conversation to the reinsurers mm-hmm. at the moment because, like you said, we've not had this influx of capacity. I, and the obvious conclusion that most people have drawn from that quite a long time ago was even if they did come along, what difference would it make? You know, if somebody sets up with a billion of capacity now, even if they went after those lower layers for some reason and, uh, you know, wanted to tackle that gap in the market for the, the attritional risks, would it make any difference? Not that much. But I think somebody pointed out uh, while we were chatting in Bermuda, this, this bigger issue for the longer term of the market, which was no Renry of tomorrow is being born today. Mm. So we're sat in this position where succession planning almost for the the world's largest reinsurers hasn't happened in the same way that it happened you know way back in in 92 93 you think about the amount of time that it takes and the initial impetus that's required to start growing a pool of of reinsurers of whom there's not many left you know most of them have been absorbed uh, over time but it does take a really long time to grow sizable capital vehicles that can stand up against or next to you know, your, your big four Europeans, etc. I I think maybe that's part of the challenge in getting them off the ground has been like... Do you know. think some of it's hindsight, though? Because if, if you if you were there in the in the mid-90s um, and, and kind of that class of reinsurers as they were being born, um, they were set up as captives mm. or, or shared pools of risk. We are seeing that today. We are seeing increased flow of capital and capacity into into captive models even shared captive models yeah. um and and in the 90s 
probably every, they just saw it as that. And, and then eventually they became full-fledged, standalone, mm. full-stack reinsurers. I think the same thing is possible, but we're just, mm. we don't have that hindsight. Yeah, perhaps. Mm. I, th I think definitely that feels like a more, subtle's the wrong word, but like a, a different way of building the scale without having to try and compete with the, the fully-fledged offerings of the major reinsurers, right? Because I, th I think going back to this diversification point and the ability to offer decent prices, we part of the challenge, the barrier to entry for a new reinsurer is that if you're not providing this full suite of services, how are you able to offer a competitive price? Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't go in and say, well, we're just going to start with cap for now and just accumulate horrendous amounts of, of cap risk <laughs> that's not offset with anything else. And likewise, you can't really do that. Yeah, and the specialty mustard become core mustard. Yeah, <sighs> right. You gotta, you gotta find the right. Well, so there needs to be a crisis somewhere where there's not enough mustard to fill, <laughs> fill, that, <laughs> fill that hot dog. <laughs> My Good. fridge sometimes. Yeah. yeah. No, I I think the the other thing that sort of might bump into this is the the biggest challenge when you're setting up a new sort of capacity provider is um, access to deal flow. And, and alongside that, some element of diversification where it's like you can access deals but also not be overly exposed to a single event which could be, be destructive. Where this might become really interesting is in these sort of fast follow or automated follow areas where people could come in, deploy capital, but inherently get a much sort of wider spread or diversification of that risk and grow that way. So I think in addition to to not having the benefit of hindsight with the current model, I also think we're not looking forward enough with like how the environment in which they participate might also be evolving alongside their offering. Because you could make a claim that your access to new pools of risk, um, whether it's through deploying your capital through um, cap bonds or supporting, like getting on panels alongside partners, like a Ren who does sort of helps deploy capital, um, opens up ways for you to put that capital to work in ways that may not have existed in the mid-90s. So I, I think it's a combination of those two things is people might be getting very, very creative around, we're going to raise and we're going to deploy it in this way, and this is going to help us build the model of tomorrow. It's, it's certainly very impressive how quickly Kin has grown, I would say, as a case study of this. I mean, I, I was a bit doubtful, if I'm honest, when this automated underwriting approach, I mean, the, the automated follow style, yeah. was launched as to whether it would get the buy and the traction but yeah, they've key. key sorry yeah has, has done really really well mm -hmm. uh, as a as a syndicate and yeah. and they've been uh, getting support from like other partners in the market yeah. right so that people are built like joining them and sort of sharing that sort of model alongside like what would have been c competition previous in the previous mm -hmm. model is now like oh we can all bundle together and get bigger sort of syndicated lines but i think see that, that's it that's yeah. that's great for them um, because you know they're they're now seen as clear market leaders, and you know they've they've set all the benchmarks at, at Lloyd's, um, who do most of their regulation um, around what's required of an algorithmic underwriting solution, and so that means that it's it's much much cheaper, much much easier if someone wants to do fast follow to just back key yeah. um, rather than setting up their own thing. Yep. Um, but it does stunt some of that like diversity that, that you say mm. the market will need over time if that's the direction that the market goes in. Yeah. And I think like, I th I th and I think that's a question that 
this bit of the industry has been grappling with for a long time is almost what do you need first? Do you need the companies that adopt this model or do you need the technology yeah. and, and the enablement for it first? I don't think anyone's quite worked that out. Mm. Well, while we ponder that, maybe it's, it's a good moment to talk about Lloyd's more generally, actually, because thinking about you know just a few years ago, probably three years ago, Lloyd's was actually in a pretty worrying place in terms of how it was performing, You know, years of poor results. I mean, it feels like the, the cards have turned over completely there. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, you know, coming off the back of a great year last year, looking like they're going to post fabulous results this year. Stamp capacity is coming out, you know, 50 billion plus of, of business going out compared to, you know, I remember when that was half of that. Yeah. Uh, they really have grown uh, quite impressively. At the same time, what, what I found really interesting is that their share actually of a lot of specialty business has declined a bit relative mm. to the US markets, for example. They, they, they have a bit of room to grow, arguably, uh, following the cutbacks when they when they decided, oh, cutbacks is the wrong term, the, uh, the decile 10, et cetera, when they were trying to improve performance more generally. Uh, it does feel like Lloyd's has been through a bit of a performance turnaround uh, alongside its culture turnaround, which is probably another topic for another time. <laughs> well, rather than, I, I think it's quite easy to tell whether Lloyd's is going forwards or backwards. Um, but the extent of that can actually be quite opaque because of the, the whole stamp capacity system. Um, you know, there's, there's no other area of this industry that measures its appetite to risk in a, in a, a written premium number. Mm-hmm. You, you would always measure that on an exposure basis. Um, so it, like, it's never really made sense to me why Lloyd's decides... That they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, reward good performers with being able to write more premium, whereas actually it should be okay. We're gonna reward good decision makers with being able to take on more exposure. Um, and in mm. market cycles, it becomes quite difficult mm. to tell. Okay, well, it, you know, is that increased stamp capacity because we're getting the same premium, we're getting a higher premium for the same risk, yeah. um, or is that genuinely the market being able to take on more risk? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think a lot of the the recent growth in the market has been disguised uh, somewhat by the level of inflation we've seen. I, I know certainly there's been a lot of analysis to try and mm-hmm. figure out what the actual uh, numbers look like when you account for those additional factors. But certainly I <laughs> probably had less attention given to inflation when it comes to premium growth and more attention when it comes to claims. I So we, we probably need to keep the latter in mind that yeah. we're probably going to face as we have this year, quite a few more hundred billion dollar plus insured claim years. Yeah, but I, I think that um, I think that it, the balance of attention that you just pointed out is aligned with reality. I think claims are inflating faster because because there's because it's like elements of like cost and materials and things are moving faster than cl- under than clients are willing to pay, even if they had like the freedom to increase prices. I think clients would start going elsewhere, doing their own. Like I think there's a it certainly happens earlier. Yeah, I don't know about faster, but but I think that's debatable. But earlier for sure because claims can't. I mean, you have you have to yeah. buy a bit of wood, don't you? When the claim happens, yeah, right on that day, you have to wait until the following year to charge more premium. Yep, yeah, you wait to renewals, and you can yeah, yeah. So I think there is a bit of a lag there anyway. Um, but even things socially, I think people are willing to, and you, they talk about the reforms on tort and things in Florida, like 
there's also structurally where there's this sort of social inflation. People are pressing for, you know, going door to door, asking for people who have had claims. Like there's this push to drive claims, which isn't, no one's going door to door like maybe they used to, but yeah. <laughs> pushing for like, incre- like, I don't know. You see it's, it's, it, the, that, that lag and that sort of experience people feel is authentic. And I think those reasons it gets covered in that way is people notice the pain they get from increased payments of claims and the recognition that repairing something apples for apples this year versus what it would cost to build it or repair it two or three or five years ago feels radically different where I don't think you could say the same with premiums except for mm-hmm. those who've had like egregious price hikes on, on their renewals. Yeah, and I, I think one of the really interesting topics just diving into what you just said there is with the reforms in Florida, suddenly we're potentially putting loads of lawyers who specialize in getting people to claim extensively for their insurance i out of work i mm-hmm. so suddenly you've got this small army of lawyers who used to live in florida and make all their money from doing this type of business and they're not allowed to do that largely anymore if these reforms continue to be effective uh, where are they going to go now are they just going to go <laughs> over the, the state boundary or find another state that's like has less effective controls or it have to be one that's warm in the winter right? yeah yeah so I think <laughs> everyone's waiting to see, you know, will, will they go somewhere else and do the same thing, yeah. you know, in a different region, or or will they find some other way to to make money out of out of the insurance world? <laughs> we, we shall see. It's the hellscape to see them just emerging like a little storm of briefcases into the wild. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? So, um, brief tangent on the ethics of finance. I <laughs> only better briefly tangent into the ethics of finance. Let's go. I so so there's this long term question about if you work in investment banking, hedge funds, etc., about whether you're adding value to society or not, or whether you're effectively just making money off society mm. by arbitraging, you know, prices between different markets, etc. I and a, a greatly contested suggestion is that. I, by doing what they do in investment banking, they're actually making markets more efficient. I, could we argue that these lawyers are actually the unsung heroes of the insurance industry, <laughs> making the insurance market more efficient by spotting you know, loopholes and issues with the way that coverage is procured and executed, and that actually their efforts have led to this reform to make our insurance market a more efficient and healthier place? I think their efforts have directly led to the reform. <laughs> well, so are. I think you could make that claim. They're like right. activists. Yeah. <laughs> they really exactly. care. They're just champions of the people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but transitioning back to the renewal season and the overview, I wanted to get sort of, Tom, your thoughts as to um, movement that we saw directly on, on our platform and software that, that our clients use um, as it sort of provides a bit of a, a comparison or an overview of these reports that have come out as well as sort of insider thoughts that we've seen from from usage that we've gotten. Yeah, talking to our clients, um, the, the brokers, uh, you know, largely, they have a bigger view than us yeah. anyway. Um, uh, but what we saw anecdotally kind of largely followed um, what what the, the big brokers have had. Um, there was quite, a, uh, there was more variation than I was expecting between the brokers Mm-hmm. Um, and and their reports this year, um, which was interesting. Um, but I, I think when we when we speak to to individual clients, um, you know, it, it largely followed the themes. The the clients that focus very internationally have a broad spread of risk, 
um, were finding things a little bit easier. Mm. Um, they, you know, things were a bit more predictable. They knew where their capacity was coming from. There were fewer difficult conversations mm. um, late into the renewal season. Um, like I said a bit earlier, companies that are in markets that have experienced big losses this year um, found things much more difficult. Mm. Um, but I even then, they knew it was going to be much more difficult in August, September, mm. um, rather than, than having things sprung on them in, in November um, like they did last year. So, so yeah, I, I agree, you know, what they call a new world, what a difference a year makes. There's some ones that are officially out. This is just press releases from press GC releases from GC. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, you know, the ti I think the titles kind of sum it yeah. up. Um, you know, very different from last year. Um, or last year was very different to normal, and, and yep. this is kind of, kind mm -hmm. of a, a return to normalization. Some of those pressures were still there, though, mm. right? It, it wasn't. We didn't see a situation where we spoke a lot last year about the additional questions that are being asked by reinsurers of cedents yeah. um, via their brokers obviously those questions didn't go away um, those questions were still there um, and so I think that added robustness and added due diligence that people were doing last year is probably here to stay yeah. um, and will just become a standard part of the process um, so it's going to be really important for cedents to be able to respond really quickly to a wide variety of questions and a, a deeper interrogation um, of what their numbers and the figures that they're presenting and the tables and charts that they're presenting really mean yeah. um, which means they're going to have to know the numbers better yeah. um, and they're going to have to use you know methods of aggregation that allow them to manipulate and slice and dice and, and answer questions really easily I, I don't think that's going away yeah well I think that it circles back to this point of bifurcation where those similar to how we have it with loss affected and non-loss affected programs similarly you'll see students who are able to turn around and have answers to these questions up front getting sort of first cut of capacity right and if it, if we're going to continue to sort of see the people like more and more pull towards um sort of best in class risk um and away from sort of risk that feels more risky um those types of things will begin to have a increasing impact over time as reinsurers look to deploy capital into the to the types of risks that make the most sense and feel like they're going to get the best return on. Do you think we saw a improvement in timeliness? I, I'm careful to introduce the topic of punctuality, uh, given glass houses, but did we see people coming to to market? <laughs> it, it depends on what aspect, yeah. right? Um, I, I think last year people got prepped actually really early. Yeah. Um, and, and this year they probably got prepped around the same time. The thing is that everyone just sat on everything yeah. for a, a massive period of time, mm. waiting to see what could be traded off against what. And, mm -hmm. and there was, you know, that horse trading was still happening. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. I guess in, in the time that remains, it would be good to turn our spectacles, none of us are wearing them, <laughs> turn, our, <laughs> turn our view towards 2024 and uh, what we think is ahead or lies ahead for, for the year that we're looking at now. Uh, similar trends, hardening, softening, jumping about all over the place. What do you what do you see as the main topics that are going to come out over the next few months? I think you'll see a stabilization still. I think m uh, sort of like a market wide high level. I don't think you'll see rates dropping yet, but I also don't think I think we've sort of pulled the bandit up in twenty twenty three where you're not going to see any sort of 
massive spikes, albeit from those maybe if you had really bad loss affected layers still if you had, you know, if you're suffering from Turkish losses or you had a bunch of war exposure, like those programs will still be very, very difficult. Um, but I, so I think you'll see that. And I will, I still also think that as reinsurers are sort of meeting their cost of capital for the first time in a while, I suspect you'll continue to see them continue to lean into that, trying to avoid layers that could erode or damage that performance and doubling down on pro parts of programs and layers and, and spots in the market that they feel can continue to benefit them there um, in this sort of short term. Whether that then balances out in another year or two's time, we'll see. But I think that's what we'll see in the short term from my perspective. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I agree broadly. I, I think the U.S. casualty story still has some yep. legs to run yep. um, on it, and we'll see that, you know, in quarterly results across the first half of the year, um, and and that will have an impact. Yep. Um, but otherwise, things, you know, you you can see where the trends are, and, and yeah. it would take a huge surprise to to change those at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we see a probably as as you hinted at with this, this recurring word of bifurcation, maybe that's going to be the word for, for the next year. I, you know, we, we had a, a prior renewals where there was wholesale change, you know, regardless of what line of business you were doing, capital had changed its mind. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> prices are going up right now. Some of those macroeconomic events that we've, we've seen affecting us, whether it's geopolitics, whether it's climate change, we're going into an El Nino this, this year, mm -hmm. I believe. So that'd be interesting. Um, but equally, you know, some of the more general pressures from the results of inflation, interest rates, et cetera, we're probably going to see a more nuanced interpretation of how those are affecting individual classes and looking more closely at reserves and performance than we did in the previous couple of years. I know yeah. people have been looking at, at cyber capacity, people have been looking at motor claims in the US as uh, some horrendous accident records emerging there probably because everyone keeps watching Netflix on their phone whilst driving. Don't do it. It's a bad <laughs> idea. I, but this also... It drives itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that gap period between <laughs> automated <laughs> motor. Anyway. I, but that as we do go into 2024, I, I do expect that we'll see more and more class-specific and region-specific adjustments mm -hmm. being made against a more stable backdrop, I guess, as, yeah. as reinsurers decide what they want their, their portfolios to look like and students decide how willing they are to continue writing portfolios that you know might not give them the rate they require. Yeah. Well, and as, as much as our podcast is the absolute source of truth for all of these things, to Ben's point, um, the Howden uh, renewal report dives into macroeconomic trends and inflationary pressures and tons and tons of stuff. If, if you want to read a 71-page report, um, and print it off and waste all of your printer's ink. It's an actually an excellent Not reading waste. to all of those. <laughs> yeah, valued deployment of my 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 printer's ink. But it it dives into all of those nuances across all those various elements there. So really, really thorough, um, excellent work by um, Flandro. That will be in the show notes. Um, we'll also put the Gallagher one in the show notes as well, so people can access those very conveniently from our sites. So, I as we're sat here with Superseed's finest, or some of them. Many other fine supersede team members, of course, not currently on the show. I <laughs> How was the renewal from a supersede perspective? Do you want it to take was, that one? It was excellent. Yeah, I know. I just I like the way that you asked me when you know full well how it went. But uh, <laughs> I'll go along with the ruse. Yeah. Um, the renewal season went excellently. 
Um, we put through over 60 billion US dollars um, in underlying premium this year, um, which is, you know, we did 24 point something last year. So, so enormous, enormous growth in the throughput from it. A lot of that was in digitized submission packs. Um, so over a 200% increase in the number of, of digital submissions that were made by Seedents. Um, so we're seeing huge growth in that. That's that's good adoption. Um, those those are good growth numbers. We're seeing people are willing to go digital um, now, which is really encouraging. Um, our numbers are still only one percent of the market, probably. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that move to digital is as wholesale as you'll believe if you read annual reports and and things like that from in insurance companies, particularly. Yeah. Um, actually, most of the user growth came from the reinsurer side. So uh, we've now got nearly 200 reinsurance markets um, are kind of live and, and using the platform yeah. and, and registering risks on it. Um, so we can see that it's being adopted from that side. Um, yeah, lots more to do. Yeah, no, super exciting. 2024 is going to be a big one for us and for the market at whole as a whole. So um, off we go now yeah. into, into, the, into the new horizon. Yeah, happy new year, everyone. Think of some good New Year's resolutions. I can suggest some that involve using Superseed if you're stuck for ideas. <laughs> happy new year, everyone.